Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. We see that you know you are. We're doing our typical thing where you're muted. So go ahead and wave to everybody. Say hello to your friends. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good evening, everybody. Uh, give a thumbs up if anybody else is about to experience a serious thunderstorm outside. Anybody else? Yeah, right. So we're going to be praying for weather and internet connections and power and all of those things. Um, so uh, lots of people are coming in. We already have 56 people who have stepped into the room and we're already just two minutes in. Uh, if you've been part of Hope University for anything for the past several weeks, you know that many people come within the first 10 minutes. So for those of you who are now logging on, it's good to see you, friends, and so many community of hopers. And I see uh, some people from all different parts. I see people in Tampa. I see people in Oldsmar. Good to see you. And not just in the West Palm Beach area. Uh, lots of people hopping on. Great to see you guys. All right. East Campus, West Campus. It's exciting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is great. So uh, we're going to go ahead and turn it over to Dale, who is going to be our host for this evening. And uh, I'm going to keep playing the digital host and moderator for the comments. Well, I just want to also echo what uh, Pastor Trevor said. <laughs> Welcome to everybody. Um, I've got a really uh, bad storm just to our north. So, you know, we're going to all hold in here. May, and we've already prayed that this is going to go smoothly. But uh, if something happens, hang with us and we're going to try to get us reconnected. I want to remind everybody before we dive into tonight that uh, next week uh, we have another uh, great presentation. Dr. Ben Witherington will be with us, and he's going to be talking on the subject what he's entitled Apocalypse Now. He's going to be teaching us how to understand apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible, how to interpret the book of Revelation, all these small, very simple topics we're going to deal with. Uh, next week, you're going to love Dr. Uh, Witherington, and we're just delighted uh, to have him share with, with us. So more on that, but uh, tonight, uh, I am so honored and so privileged to introduce to you a friend of mine who is uh, Dr. Timothy Tennant, uh, who is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, and he's also uh, a professor of world mission. So we've, we've asked him really to come in that role uh, tonight and share with us. Let me just share real, real quickly. Uh, Dr. Tennant received an MDiv from Gordon Conwell, a THM from Princeton Theological Seminary, and his PhD from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, he's pastored in Georgia, the state of Georgia and in New England, so like that, there's some good diversity right there. Uh, written a number of books around the topics that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, he and his precious wife, Julie, have two adult children. And um, this is just a great honor to have him with us. So could we welcome Dr. Tennant uh, to us? And I'm going to pray for him, and I'm going to turn it over uh, to Dr. Tennant. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for this time that we have this evening. We ask your blessing upon this. God, would you just give us a capacity and a desire in this space to learn? You're doing some fresh things all around the world, and we have a privilege and an opportunity to learn about a lot of what you're doing uh, this evening and this time. So I pray special blessings and favor on Dr. Tim. Would you just use his words to inspire us and to challenge us in our own faith journey? We thank you in advance for this time in Jesus' name. And everybody said, 
Amen. Amen. Dr. Tennant, it's yours. Yeah, before, can I give one technical thing for everybody first, guys, before we hand off to Dr. Tennant? So sorry, Dr. Tennant. I want to remind everybody with your chat, please don't wait till the end if you have a question of oh, Dr. Yeah. Tennant. Um, it's best, if you have a question, to throw it in there in the chat as you see it. And um, as you see it, um, you know, that'd be, uh, as, or as you hear a question, uh, make sure you go ahead and submit that into the chat so I can help sort through that. If all of you insert questions at the very end of the lecture and then it's time for Q&A, that's going to be difficult to help pull out some of the best questions. So as you think of stuff, just chime right on in. Feel free to do that and we'll call those at the end. Great. Right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for the privilege of this time to be part of this uh, great uh, learning session and uh, greetings to all of you. I can see you in uh, various squares in your kitchens and living rooms. And some people outside on the lake looks like. looks like a lot of different settings. And we're really happy to see all of you here. Um, my topic tonight is about uh, global Christianity. And I'm going to share a screen with you. Hopefully you will see this screen all right. And um, I'll bring it up for you. Do you see a screen that says seven snapshots of world Christianity? Yes, sir. We're good. Great. Well, this is, uh, this is our topic for the night. Um, and I want to just first introduce uh, broadly, you know, what do we mean by the term and kind of a few opening terms and then say a few things about Christianity as a whole around the world. And then we're going to take actually seven snapshots around the world and look at Christianity, um, kind of give you a global perspective on the world Christian movement. We'll be looking at uh, Latin America, looking at Sub-Saharan Africa, the Islamic world, India, China, Korea, and then finally Western Europe. We're not going to look at anything inside North America. So we're looking at outside of our context and asking the question, what is going on around the world? Well, this particular term uh, you know, world Christianity, what does that mean, world Christianity? Uh, in this context, we're really looking at what does it mean to look at the whole worldwide Christian movement in its totality, which is pretty unusual. Most of the time we think about our church, we think about what's happening, for example, in the United Methodist Church or our particular church we attend, and we don't often have the ability to step back and look at what is happening globally around the church, around the world, that's not focused on particular domination, but just on all those around the world who self-identify as Christians and belong to some public expression of the church. Um, there are, of course, there's reasons to look at particular denominations and particular groups, of course, but this is very helpful to kind of get a broad view of the strength and the challenges of Christian around the world. So, uh, you know, from your own experience, uh, if you're at Hope, you know, you're in the midst of a, a vibrant church, but it's a domination that's struggling. And so in some ways, it's uh, not always easy to understand what's happening globally uh, unless you look out and kind of take a step back and see the larger global picture of the church. So I want to introduce a few other terms to you, uh, because if you read a lot in this area, you'll see a number of terms that are used. And these are mostly, um, I would say they're largely, there's some nuances, but basically they're interchangeable words. So occasionally uh, you'll hear tonight I'm using the term world Christianity, but you might often hear the term majority world church. Uh, this is a term that's used for uh, the places where the church is in the majority. Uh, and so it's referring to the church in Latin America, Africa, India, Asia, that kind of the whole non-Western world. 
is sometimes called majority world church. They used to use the term non-Western world, but because it defines somebody what they're not, it's just not a very positive term. So today they, they prefer the term majority world church. You also heard terms like global south or global Christianity. Uh, those terms are also used. These are terms trying to describe the church as a whole um, and a way of looking at kind of the larger trends outside of North America. You occasionally hear the word Christendom, uh, and this is one of those words where the actual meaning of the word doesn't really correspond to how it's often used in, like, conversation or whatever. Uh, the word Christendom technically refers to those parts of the world that have had uh, state-sponsored Christianity or, or Christian was constitutionally protected. So you have this particularly historically in Western Europe and in Latin America, where you actually had in the constitution of the country, you had protections. And the fact that you had the country would say, you know, we are a Christian country. Uh, the United States, of course, had a separation of church and state, but we have a kind of a civil religion, which uh, historically has been connected to Christianity. But Christendom really refers to those places where uh, Christianity has some official status and uh, that's important because that often made the numbers of Christianity very, very high in parts like in Germany and in England, and other places like that in the world. But in uh, popular usage, people often use the word Christendom to kind of refer to, you know, all the Christians in the world are often referred to broadly as Christendom. Uh, even though it's not technically true, it is used that way quite a bit. We will not use it that way tonight, but it's something that you may hear. Uh, the other broad thing I want to say is um, is kind of a general statement about the time we live in. This, uh, if you look, if you we say we live in the um, the opening uh, close of the 20th century, the opening decades of the 21st century. What is the big story of our time? What is the story of our whole lifetime in terms of Christianity? And I want to introduce that up front because if you look at this whole lecture tonight, one of the big uh, takeaway points or the big story of Christianity, if you could put a headline over a hundred years time, what we would say is this is the story. We're living in the story of what's called the uh, shift in the center of gravity of Christianity. Now, I want to explain more of what that means, but what it tells us is that Christians are really growing in places that they have not traditionally grown and Christianity is receding in places where it has traditionally been strong. So Christianity is in a very tumultuous and exciting, actually, period of dramatic transformation. And we call this the center of Christian gravity. Now, I want to just introduce this concept a little more by showing you the, um, this from a pure demographic point of view of the United States. Now, this has nothing to do with Christianity this has to do with the center of U.S. population. Now, this is something that most of us understand that uh, if you look at our country's history, over time, the center of gravity has moved uh, throughout uh, our country. That means to say the center of gravity is that point where you have equal numbers north and south and east and west of that point. That's called the center of population gravity. So in the United States, uh, if you look at the big history of our country, what is the story? It's the story of the population gradually moving westward, right? And then, as you'll see, moving more toward the south. So this is actually something that the U.S. Census Department traces 
And every year, I mean, I'm sorry, every 10 years at the census, which is required by Constitution, they will reestablish what is the center of gravity for the U.S. population. It doesn't really mean that any necessarily lives at that point. It's where is that point in the U.S. where the numbers north and south are equal to numbers east and west? And it's the, the center, population center of the U.S., so you can see, for example, here's a picture from some years ago. Uh, this was in uh, after 1910 census, and it was uh, at that time in uh, Bloomington. And here's a man standing by the sign uh, uh, back in the 13th census. Uh, that's over 100 years ago. If you look at the current one, uh, the current one is here in the ground in a place called, have you ever heard of this, Plato, Missouri, of all places. Who, who would believe it? The center of um, uh, gravity as of right now is Plato, Missouri, and the population of that little town is only 109, but they are now the proudly can say that the number of Americans equals east and west, north and south of their point. Now, they will only hold this title for another year because, as you know, we're in a census year now, and so it's going to move about 20 more miles to the uh, west and south uh, in the um, in the next census, but they've had it for the last uh, nine years. Well, back when I was, before I came to um, Asbury, I, I ran a center for global Christianity that studied a lot of these trends, and I asked my staff the question, if the U.S. can do this for our own population, why can't we do this for the Christian population for the whole world over time? Um, thankfully, I had on my staff at that time uh, two people with uh, PhDs in statistical analysis. They're great mathematicians, and mathematicians love challenges like this. So in 2001, uh, we published this chart, and we were the first one to do this. So you're, you, of course, now it's been published in a lot of books, but the, we, we published this in 2001. And this map here shows the center of Christian gravity over the entire history of the church. Now, uh, let me explain what this means and why this is important, because you may think I'm gone crazy here showing you this strange map <laughs> with this, these lines everywhere. But what this shows you is, of course, on the uh, right side of the map, you can see in the year 30 AD, which we started it, you have the church was centered in Jerusalem. So that's where the beginning point is. And you notice between the... Um, all the way to the year 600, the church kind of moves back and forth in a pretty narrow band because the church was moving uh, at that point along the Silk Route to China and all, actually the Roman Empire. And uh, the church amazingly actually got to China about the same time that we got to modern-day Britain. Uh, but then from the 7th century on, the church really migrated to uh, to Europe and to white peoples of the world and um so you see a dramatic Western shift. And this is why many people in the world associate uh, Christianity with the Western world, because it moved westward, westward dramatically. And so you can see on the very top, uh, 1500 is the Reformation. In the 16th century, it continued to move dramatically west. And you'll notice that in 1970, and this is the point I want to show you, 1970, and many of you who are watching this will have been alive in 1970, uh, I was in high school at the time, but in 1970 was one of the most momentous events in the history of the church, and nobody, you know, even talked about it or even knew it happened, because 1970 was the first time in 
over 1,600 years that the church ever moved back toward the east. And you can see that we're, we're seeing this dramatic shift from 1970 to 2000, and it goes on down to we projected it what it'll be throughout our lifetime, where the church is moving uh, southward and, and back eastward again. What does this mean? This means that this involves, it takes millions of new Christians in like the southern continents, places like India or in Latin America, to pull this, this, uh, this number to the uh, south. And it means a lot of new Christians in uh, China, for example, India, to pull it to the east. And so you can see that right now, if, if you know your, your uh, geography, you'll see that's in West Africa. Uh, the center of Christian gravity is amazingly, kind of like Plato, uh, uh, Missouri, we saw earlier, the center of Christianity is actually in Mali, West Africa. Mali is a mostly, it's like a 98% Muslim country. There are very few Christians there. But actually, Mali is currently the center of Christian gravity. So if you look at this on a map, maybe a better way to look at this is look at it this way. Uh, this shows you um, the church throughout time. And you can see that the uh, kind of the red uh, maroon color on the top is kind of Western Christianity. And you can see how for many, many years it, it grew and grew and grew. But you can see the turn in the 20th century where this blue goes way, way up. This shows a dramatic rise of Asian, African, Latin American Christians. So, for example, to give you just one example, on a given, a given day, like a typical 24-hour period, there'll be 16,000 new Christians in China. So that means when you wake up tomorrow morning, uh, before you go to bed at night, there'll be 16,000 more Christians in China and 11,000 fewer Christians in Western Europe and North America. So you put that together over uh, dozens of years, it means real change. Uh, in fact, if you look at this chart here, you can see this shows you the, the, the uh, blue represents kind of traditional uh, North America, Western Europe Christianity. You can see how the blue bar has gotten a lot smaller and the uh, purple bars, which is Latin America, South America, I'm sorry, Latin America, Africa, Asia has gotten a lot larger. If you look at it by continent, you can see that the yellow bar represents Western, uh, basically white Christianity. And you can see how it's dramatically uh, getting smaller. This means that we are seeing, particularly among millennials, uh, the next generation, uh, the transmission of the faith between a, um, a person who was, for example, in World War II, the, the so-called, you know, the builder generation, the great generation, that generation compared to the uh, baby boomers, which is my generation, down to millennials, et cetera, there's a dramatic shift away from Christianity among those generations. That represents a big challenge for the church in the West. But you can see in other parts of the world, especially you can see in Asia and Africa, it's growing uh, very, very dramatically. Um, you might also not have known that uh, I mentioned 1970 was a big year for us because that's when the church uh, move southward, and so it wasn't, uh, it's no surprise that that's also the time, it was actually, it took a, it was actually 1979, two years, a few years later, where for the first time uh, in many, many uh, centuries, the majority of the church was no longer white Christians. 
so the idea that uh, Christianity is predominantly a white religion is absolutely untrue today and becoming increasingly more so, even in the Western world. Um, so we're seeing that the, uh, the non-white races of the world, uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, are dramatically changing kind of what the typical Christian looks like. So if you go back to 1900, which is the beginning of this chart, uh, the typical um, Christian would have been a 47-year-old British male. Today, it's a 27-year-old Nigerian woman. Wow. Uh, just as a picture of what is the face of Christianity. Uh, Christianity is becoming increasingly uh, non-white inc- and much younger. And uh, for also for the first time in history, though we have uh, some statistical problems, I can't show you a chart because it's something we... Unfortunately, we don't have always good data on uh, male-female Christian reporting is not always uh, consistent around the world. So we've been uh, fighting for this for years. But we do know that, that female Christians today outnumber male Christians uh, also in the world. But we don't know for sure how much that's happening. But anyway, to show you just some broad ways uh, the church is really, really changing. Another thing that you'll notice on this chart and this is a 30-year um, slice of time, so the actual numbers on the bottom uh, you can ignore because numbers are much, much higher. But the percentages I want you to look at in terms of how different where the church is growing. So you can see the, the chart in the middle is the world population, which is set over a 30-year period, uh, the, the, the world grew by 75%. So for any movement, doesn't matter what it is, Christianity or anything else, if you're going to maintain your percentage of the world, you have to grow by more than 75% over a 30-year period or you will lose ground because the world itself is growing rapidly uh, around you know, the, the globe. And so you can see that uh, even though Roman Catholics, for example, grew quite a bit, they didn't grow quite as much as the world same true for mainline Protestants. If you're in North America, like the United Methodist Church, for example, you can see actually declined even in raw numbers, uh, quite apart from the, the global population growth, which means that the percentage of people that would be United Methodist or Presbyterian or whatever kind of traditional mainline denominations is exceedingly small uh, in a global perspective. Um, hope that doesn't disappoint you. That's just the way it is. But you can see over here on the right, um, the kind of Pentecostals, uh, indigenous, these are really what we call, call independent Christians that are not aligned with historic denominations, has been exploding in growth around the world. Uh, this has been the most dramatic growth. So many of the uh, growth centers of Christianity today don't uh, particularly align with, necessarily, though some do, but not always align with kind of historic Christian movements that you may have heard of. And we'll look at some examples of that uh, tonight. So what we'll do now is we're going to look at, um, I I thought I would just do seven snapshots um, around the world real quick, and we can see if we can briefly run through some of these and give you a little feel for what's happening. We can't cover 195 countries, but look at some regions. One of the big stories of Latin America is the explosion of Latin American Pentecostalism. Uh, Latin America was traditionally very Roman Catholic, and now you're seeing a a huge explosion of Pentecostal movements throughout Latin America, uh, particularly places like Brazil. I've been in Brazil, and 
attend these meetings. Uh, it's really, really dramatic. And uh, you're seeing a, a, a huge growth of this. In fact, just to give you a little feel for this, that in any given hour, 400 uh, people move from Roman Catholicism to Pentecostalism in Latin America. So even though the numbers have not changed dramatically in terms of Christians, because there's some Roman Catholics there, the, uh, the rise of Pentecostalism is very, very uh, dramatic uh, in Latin America. So today, the uh, evangelicals and Pentecostals make up a third of the population of Latin America. And as I said before, Roman Catholics um, have seen a tremendous change uh, as people around them have become uh, more and more uh, attracted to more Pentecostal movements. It's a big, big change uh, in Latin America. And I've, I've had opportunity to be down there and visit a lot of these churches, and they are large, they're vibrant, very expressive in their worship, and uh, it, you really get a sense of a lot of vibrancy uh, that, of course, in Florida, you have, uh, you're a majority-minority state, I believe, already. So you have a huge Latin American population in Florida. So you have seen these, many of these churches also are now planting churches in North America. Uh, a second snapshot would be Sub-Saharan Africa. Another uh, place, this would be looking not at North Africa, which is mostly Islamic and has not experienced a lot of growth, but in Sub-Saharan Africa, this is the 54 countries uh, below the Sahara. Uh, it, they're largely, uh, there's some differences, but broadly speaking, experiencing uh, extraordinary growth uh, throughout uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. If you look at the uh, regions of Africa, uh, you can see that, uh, as I said, North Africa, very, very tiny. But if you look at East Africa and Central Africa and West Africa in particular, you can see some fairly uh, dramatic uh, growth of Christianity. Now, they also have a lot of population growth, but it's been fairly dramatic uh, Christian growth. If you look at the numbers uh, comparing a 100-year period, in 1910, you had less than 10% of Africans were Christians. Now, the population of Africa was only 124 million at that time. But 100 years later, uh, there's almost a half a billion Africans, but nearly half of them are, 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 are Christians. So you have 47.9% of, of sub-Saharan Africans are Christians. Um, this is a remarkable, a remarkable development. And this represents um, 60 million churches that belong to a range of movements. I won't go into these individual movements. There's a, a, some amazing movements uh, that you may never have heard of. I'll give you one example, but they, they collectively belong to what is called the AIC. Uh, this is not to be confused with one of the denominations by that name, the Africa Inland Church, but this is the Africa Indigenous Church uh, or the Africa Independent Church. And this refers to all those churches as independent churches that have uh, grown up in Africa. There are literally uh, thousands of new denominations founded every year in Africa. So we're seeing uh, one of the other big you know, stories of our time has been the explosion of denominations. Uh, you might be surprised to know this, but there's now uh, over 44,000 denominations around the world. So it is, uh, it's growing quite uh, dramatically. So these movements, um, again, I'll mention one of these. because I love this example because 
this is a church that's roughly actually larger than the United Methodist Church, but it's called uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Prophet Simon Kambangu. Now, I, I encourage you to go out and then your friends at church and ask them, how many of you ever heard of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Prophet Simon Kambangu? And they probably have not heard about it, but they now are larger than the United Methodist Church. They have over 9 million members. Um, we've seen a lot of United Methodist growth uh, in, the, uh, in, in Africa. You, I mentioned here that you know, the, the uh, Congo Conference has uh, grown from 80,000 to uh, 2 million. Uh, you have a lot, a lot of growth uh, in, in Methodism, but there's all these other movements that are happening that are very, very large indeed. And uh, there are different kinds of these churches. I could go into more details if you want to ask questions later, but they're very, very uh, vibrant. They have remarkable, here's a man baptized with milk. It's very common practice there. Uh, you have uh, some very liturgical expression, both liturgical and very charismatic expressive. Uh, you have a lot of these new movements popping up. This is our daughter on the right there. You see a daughter there. She's working in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. She works in Tanzania. And I just to give you a little, the sound clip works, so I can just play a little bit of her uh, preaching the gospel. Um, she's actually uh, uh, preaches and speaks in a language called Alaguisa. And it's a small uh, church movement of only 45,000 people in Africa, and she's bringing the gospel. They've been there for 11 years now uh, working among the Lagua people. Uh, the third snapshot is one where uh, this is not an example of tremendous growth or transformation, just something to be aware of to give you, again, snapshots of Christianity. I want to show you things that are going well and things that are challenging. Uh, there are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, uh, and the Christian penetration in the Muslim world is very, very low, as you might imagine, and we don't have a lot of Christian movements among Muslims in the ways we normally um, uh, think about denominations and churches, etc. But uh, in the last uh, 50, 60 years, uh, we've slowly been to see the emergence of uh, Muslims who are following Jesus within the context of the mosque, where they are, they stay within the Muslim community. Uh, these are called hidden believers. Uh, it's a term for this group, uh, also often called insider movements. And in my previous uh, world, before I came to Asbury, I spent a lot of time uh, studying this movement. I've traveled to many parts of the world, uh, the Muslim world, to study this movement, and uh, there's been a lot written on this group, uh, but there are there are now literally millions of Muslims around the world who are inside mosques, who are part of Muslim communities, but are quietly worshiping Jesus Christ, uh, and we call these insider movements, and it's something that is uh, getting a lot of attention, but it's something that is, uh, you know, not really widely known and it's something that I want you to be aware of. It's right, remar remarkable. In fact, these Christians, to give you a feel for it globally, if you look at kind of the global uh, numbers of Christianity in the traditional groups of Roman Catholic and Protestant, et cetera, you can see this independent group, which I mentioned earlier with like Sub-Saharan Africa, is now 
the uh, third largest group of Christians in the world. And very soon in my lifetime, in your lifetime, we'll pass the Protestants. Uh, so traditionally, if you go to seminary, you learn about, you know, basically three main blocks of Christians, Roman Catholics, Protestants, and Eastern Orthodox. But these independents are now um, larger than the Eastern Orthodox and will soon be the largest uh, even than Protestantism. So I call this the, uh, the fourth branch of Christianity because this is a, a major new branch that's emerging. But down there in the bottom, uh, you'll see the word marginal. These are people that don't belong to any of these movements, but continue to, um, to stay because of often security issues or fear. They may, uh, I worked in India for many years and we had people who were uh, Hindus, but they, they worship Jesus Christ and they, they follow Christ, but they, for various reasons, they weren't able to be publicly known. So this number is also growing. It's something that we ought to be uh, at least aware of. The fourth of our seven snapshots has to do with Indian church planners to India. And this is something I love to talk about because, first of all, I spent most of my life as a missionary was actually spent in North India. In fact, on this campus that you're looking at there, it's called New Theological College in Dehradun, India. And these are three of our church planters that we work with over the years. But anyway, what you may not realize is one of the shifts that's happened with global Christianity is who is bringing the gospel to whom? You know, we traditionally, we had a, um, a method that we often called, uh, is jokingly referred to as the West reaches the rest. You know, in 1910, it was very typical that a Western missionary was, was called to bring the gospel to China, to India, to Asia, wherever. And so it was, in fact, even the Africans even had a term for this. It was called the, quote, white man's burden. This was a, a, a kind of pejorative way of saying that the white people seemed to feel this responsibility to bring the gospel all over the world. Well, this wasn't actually, uh, as you well know, this wasn't a white agenda. This was a Christian agenda that Jesus Christ called us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So what happened is as the Christian church moved uh southward and, of course, to the uh, east, then, of course, you begin to see millions of new Christians that came up that were Chinese, that were Africans, that were Indians. And so they began to uh, have the same burden that we have to bring the gospel to those who, uh, not, who cannot, um, you know, who've not heard the gospel. So India, uh, starting in 1975, they no longer allowed uh, visas for outside missionaries to come in. So those who worked there, we had to work there under different auspices, and we had to come in and out constantly. It was a huge challenge. And so we focused our energy on training Indians to bring the gospel to India. So there's a huge movement today uh, of Indians from South India bringing the gospel to North India. And this, to me, is one of the most remarkable stories of the gospel. If you look at uh, this is a map of India India has a long history of Christianity that goes back to the first century. Uh, uh, St. Thomas, the famous Doubting Thomas, who we, we often uh, refer to as Doubting Thomas wrongly, uh, actually ended up bringing the gospel farther than any of the apostles. And he landed in uh, the southwest corner of India in 52 AD and brought the gospel to India. 
So India has had a long connection to the gospel. The Portuguese went there. A lot of Protestant missionaries went there. And you can see these arrows that I've shown show you where the gospel has gone. But essentially, you can see that the gospel came to India mostly in the south and in the, on the coastlands of India. So if you actually look at a map and say, where are the Christians in India? You can see this is the map of India where it looks at the Christian population by district. Well, you can readily see that Christianity in India is mostly a southern phenomena, uh, as well as over there in the northeast, which is the tribal part of India. But you can see if you draw a line uh, across that upper north, you know, westward part of India, uh, you see very few Christians. In fact, uh, where the white blocks are, there's less than 12 to 100 Christians in the entire district. In the yellow, it's 100 to 1,000. These are huge districts of India much bigger than our counties. So it's largely unreached. So uh, part of my uh, ministry was to uh, go to this, where this arrow is, northern part of India, and train uh, mostly South Indians who had moved to North India and become missionaries to northern India. And this is that little area is where New uh, Theological College is. This is the campus uh, here where... Uh, well, this is where the missionaries came from, down in the south, uh, west of India. And then they are up and now in the north. This is the college where I taught for many years. And here we train uh, Indian church planters to go out and bring the gospel uh, throughout India. We've now planted uh, hundreds and hundreds of churches uh, from Hindus, background people, who've now come to Christ uh, this is very common. Uh, this is a, um, a water tank they use for collecting water during monsoon rains. Used for the, we use this for baptisms. This was a baptismal service we had a while back. This is a, a typical of a lot of our churches that meet outside. We don't often have uh, buildings and facilities like you're used to. But these are tremendous uh, movements that are now uh, exploding. I believe that today we probably have at least 30 million Christians in India. Uh, so this is a place where Christianity is growing quite dramatically, but it has never flourished in the north. And now we're seeing a lot of growth in the north. When I first went to India, uh, we estimated that time there was probably one uh, Christian for every 3,000 villages in North India, which means that if you lived in North India, the chance of you being born in a village, had any Christian at all, would be one in 3,000. Well, today, if you go to North India, and I've spent uh, just many, many, many uh, months of my life traveling throughout North India. I've been to almost every state of North India, and uh, I would spend a lot of time with our church planters. And now there are Christians uh, in almost all villages, a few Christians. There's only one or two, but Christianity is definitely growing North India and uh, we are, it's, a, it's a story that we don't like to, um, you know, the Indian government right now is very opposed to Christianity, so we can't talk about it much publicly. But, um, and it's still very small, probably only 3% of India, but it's a, there are a billion people there. So it's a lot of Christians, and it's happening there. Another uh, snapshot, number five, is the story of Christianity in China. Uh, uh, one other thing I love about this story is that 
You know, in some parts of uh, the world we've seen, like in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, most countries, my daughter works in Tanzania, as I said, and, you know, there's a wide open invitation. Anyone who wants to move to Tanzania or almost across West Africa can freely go there and preach the gospel, plant churches. There's no governmental restrictions in working in a place in sub-Saharan African countries, those 54 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. But um, if you go to China, of course, it's not true. So one of the interesting stories about Christianity is, is Christianity flourishes in wide variety of settings. Uh, here we are in democratic North America. The gospel is suffering at this time in our history. Uh, here is communist China, where the gospel is flourishing. Uh, the, the church has thrived in all kinds of situations where you think there's no way it would thrive. It can thrive. And there's times where you think we've done everything we can to help it and to nurture it, and it seems to wither. And so Christianity has a way of surprising you. Uh, there's an old saying that says Christianity is never as strong as it appears and never as weak as you think. Both are always true. Uh, I love a quote uh, from a a Dutch uh, missionary who once said that, um, uh, that Christianity, he said um, that uh, Christianity is always in a state of crisis. Its greatest shortcoming is that we're only occasionally aware of it. <laughs> the point being, there's always challenges to the church, and yet God's always faithful to do what he, he does. So if you look at the um, the Christian movement in China uh, in 1951, the, the, uh, the I'm sorry, I should say Communist Party there uh, established the Litigious Affairs Bureau, which controls all of Christianity in China. So it's, it's actually an arm of the government. So what is the, the, the public church in China is known, uh, the Protestants are known as the TSPM. This is the Three Self Patriotic Movement. Uh, I want to explain why they call it that. You can ask uh, the question if you're interested, but it's called the TSPM. Uh, the, the Catholics are called the CPA. Uh, no, no connection to uh, accounting. The Catholic Patriotic Association. So these two movements are actually part of the Religious Affairs Bureau. It's like a government uh, arm of the government, and they control the churches, they control the appointments, and they make sure that nothing is done there that... Um, and it goes against government or criticizes the government, et cetera. Uh, I have attended many of these churches over the years when I've been in China because it's, it, they're, they're publicly open. They're usually packed with people, um, but they are part of the what's called the public church in China. Um, in 1949, it was estimated there's about 1 million believers in China. Uh, today, it's believed there's at least 15 to 20 million in the TSPM. It's a lot of people, but again, China has 1.2 billion people, so this is not a large number. But the real story is the story of the non-registered churches, some's called the house church movement in China, though they often don't meet in houses. This term is often used, but it means these are uh, you know cottage settings. These are private settings where people meet that are not publicly registered with the government. And this group has exploded over the years. Uh, people believe it's got to be somewhere around the 80 million mark. Uh, some say even higher, but it's certainly probably at least around 75 to 80 million Christians uh, in these non-registered house churches. That means that Christianity there are more Christians in China than any, you know, well, except for the U.S., any country in the world. 
So this is a, a country that we don't normally associate with Christianity, but in terms of sheer numbers, uh, is second only to the USA in terms of numbers of Christians, and it's growing much faster than the population of the, um, of the country as a whole. So Chinese Christianity is a real uh, remarkable movement. Um, we don't really know exactly what goes on in the house church movements. We have small you know, stories that leak out. Uh, these are some examples of some of these non-registered churches uh, where they are studying and learning. Uh, they, they have had sporadic, but they are, uh, you can get Chinese Bibles in China. Uh, they are published, uh, it's, again, it goes in fits and starts, but there's periods of time where they do allow it. And so uh, I found, at least in my experience in China, I've been there on several occasions, uh, most people tended to have Bibles. And so you do see in this picture a lot of Chinese Bibles, and they are uh, studying them and reading them. And a lot of these uh, people are meeting in warehouses. They often meet, um, if it's in a city, they'll meet during a time when a, like a movie house meets or some gather a lot of people, and they can meet in apartments and all where people are, or won't notice them. If they're in the country, they can meet in larger gatherings. But there are a lot of these happening all across uh, the, the Chinese world. And by the way, uh, they themselves are now sent out missionaries. It's called the Back to Jerusalem movement. We don't have time to look at this, but there is a, a huge thousands of Chinese that are now crossing Central Asia themselves, uh, very effective missionaries to the Muslim world, and they are determined to make it back to China uh, by the year 2050. So there's a lot of great work going on in Central Asia by Chinese missionaries that you don't often hear about. The, the sixth uh, snapshot uh, is what has happened in, uh, in, in South Korea. And you can see here this map of North and South Korea. And I wanted to say that um, we don't really know a lot about the church in North Korea. Um, we learned uh, during the Chinese uh, period of the, um, of the Cultural Revolution, we made the assumption that Chinese Christianity had died in China. And so there was a period of time between uh, 1910, 1945, where people like myself that were doing studies of this, they predicted that the Chinese church had, had dropped from 1 million down to 500,000. But in fact, during the worst uh, period of uh, communist uh, cultural revolution, you know, Chairman Mao and all of that, the church actually grew in China uh, by millions of people, even that persecution. So uh, we, we actually reserve judgment. We actually do not know the strength of the church in a place like Pyongyang. Uh, we do know that it, uh, prior to the communist takeover of North Korea, uh, that Pyongyang was actually one of the vibrant centers of Christianity on the peninsula of Korea. That, that is the birthplace of Korean Christianity is now in North Korea. Uh, so there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of seeds that were planted in Korea in the early days, and we have no idea. We don't know if there's a lot of Christian working in the in the uh, lower like in the uh, non-registered kind of obviously there's no public churches there, but in the underground church we don't know. But it's something to be praying about. But I want to particularly look at what's happening south of the demarcation in uh, South Korea because. South Korea today um, has had dramatic uh, change. If you look at the, the growth of Christianity in South Korea, it's considered one of the great you know, headline stories of Christianity uh, in the 20th century. Uh, 
1910, there are only about 9.5 million Christians in uh, South Korea. A hundred years later, at the 2010 census, 48 million. This goes from less than half a percent to over 40 percent of South Korea. Uh, there is, there's no, that's much higher than the world Christian mark, you know, globally, which is on 30 percent. Um, there's very few countries that can boast a population of over 40 percent Christian. Um, it's one of my, it is the, the most Christianized country in Asia, and it is uh, quite remarkable. The largest church in the world is the Yodo Full Gospel Church, uh, which is uh, one picture there, and they have multiple services. This would be a full gospel, Pentecostal-type church. Uh, the largest Methodist church in the world is, um, is Kwanlim uh, Methodist Church. I don't know uh, if your pastor Dale has been there or not, but... Um, he probably has, but I've, I've preached there and been there. It's the largest Methodist church in the world is in Korea. So Korea really has a um, remarkable um, story of Asian Christianity, and there's really no place in Asia like it, actually, that can boast that kind of strength. I mean, you do have some massively large church in the Philippines. Uh, Philippines has their own version, what we would call the mega church movement. So the Philippines has some massive, vibrant churches so it's not completely unknown in Asia, um, but uh, in India, they're just now getting to be what we call large churches in India that you might call like a mega church type church. There are very few, but in Korea, there are a lot of these and they are growing quite um, dramatically. If you look at the growth of Korean missionaries, one of the themes of this night is to look at the explosion of the Christian workers that are working around the world so you can see that the Koreans themselves have uh, grown uh, dramatically as, uh, as a missionary force. And now you probably have uh, you know, 16,000, 17,000 Korean missionaries serving in 168 countries. This has been called the missionary phenomena of the 20th century. One person made the comment that on every continent, one now finds Korean missionaries. By the hundreds, preaching from Tashkent to Timbuktu, and even reaching where Westerners have been unable to tread. Uh, you may have noticed there are uh, many Korean missionaries in North America now working, and we're going to mention this in a minute as well again, but uh, I have worked with uh, Korean missionaries around the world. They arrived in India. I'm not sure what year it was, but I think it was sometime in the early 90s, uh, 1990s. I'm going to notice the uh, Koreans arriving in India where we were working, and so we began to uh, work with them as well. So it's, again, one of the phenomena that you're seeing in the Korean church growth and their, um, their work. Uh, the last of our seven snapshots has to do with the, uh, the re renewal of European Christianity. Um, I think that uh, if you look at statistics uh, about European Christianity, what you normally read, and it's true, is that Christianity is collapsing in Western Europe. And you often hear stories about um, how Christianity uh, in the West, like in North America, is, you know, maybe 10 years behind Western Europe. And there is there's no question there is statistical uh, truth to that in the sense of that European Christianity is under tremendous uh, stress. However, this is where we come back to the word Christendom. I want to come back to why that's important in the European context. In, uh, in my wife and I, we lived in Scotland. Uh, Pastor Dale mentioned this earlier. I, we were there for three years doing my doctoral work. And uh, 
you know, Scotland has an official state church. In the case of Scotland, it's the Presbyterian Church. So the, uh, the Scottish church is a Presbyterian church. The English church is, of course, the Anglican church, which you'll know. So in the United Kingdom, you have two state churches that really dominate Christianity. So what happens is if you go in any town, you'll see a, a, a large, usually stone structure, you know, stained glass windows that was the official state church of that town. And every town in Scotland had has a church like this. Well, a lot of these churches have gone, gone empty or closed down. And so this, and a lot of the statistics about Christian Europe are based on what is the state of the state church or the official church. So, you know, in Germany, it's Lutheranism. You know, in England, it's Anglicanism. In Scotland, it's Presbyterianism. These countries had a Christendom set up where they were, they officially supported a particular church. So uh, if you were, for example, let's take a group like a Baptist or even a Methodist. If you go to Edinburgh, Scotland, there you will find a Methodist church there. You'll find a Baptist church there. But they are not, they're kind of regarded the way we would we might regard, uh, it's almost like, I'm not quite like Mormons or Jehovah Witness, but they're viewed kind of like some, some group on the fringe. So you don't really, uh, when you study Christianity in Europe, you don't often notice what's happening in the, uh, you know, in the margins of Christianity in Europe. There's a lot of tremendous growth. So what's happening in, uh, in, in Europe is that you have a dramatic drop. I'll give you some really stark examples. Denmark, uh, 83% Christian kind of in name, but only 1.5 regular attend church. So you have a high Christian affiliation. That's the legacy of Christendom, where you, you, know, you grew up, you just thought to be a Dane was to be a Christian. Uh, but only a very tiny percent actually attend church. Or the Church of Scotland, which is the official Presbyterian church in Scotland, has less than 500,000 members. This is a country that has, you know, uh, 6 million people, and all of them ostensibly belong to the church, and yet very, very few members. So what's going to happen is two things are going to happen in Europe, is that, and this is happening in the U.S. too. This is why I think it's important to bring out here. You have the infusion of uh, many, many missionaries now working, coming into the UK. They say now there are probably 1,500 missionaries working in just the United Kingdom. Now, talking about France and Germany and Italy and all across Western Europe, but just in the UK. So, for example, you have, uh, you know, one of the largest churches in, uh, in Britain today is the Kingsway Christian Center, 1992, have 12,000 people every week attending church. One of the big surprises in European Christianity is the, is the ethnicity of it. The largest churches in uh, Europe are now African churches. So that vibrancy that we saw in Africa uh, has spilled over, and the Africans particularly have had a, a burden to go back into Europe where they, you know, that this was their, their uh, what the countries that originally colonized them, and they were French-speaking, they were English-speaking, so they felt comfortable going to France, going to England, and so they often went back to these countries they had cultural ties to, and they uh, have, are doing some amazing work there. And the AIC churches are growing rapidly in Europe. Uh, and then there's all these movements within the Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist that are also growing uh, in, in Europe too. 
So you can look at some of these uh, churches. This is, I, I took this picture on the left. It's like, you know, uh, this was a Saturday before the church started. But look at the, look at the number of seats. They're getting ready for their service on Sunday morning. It is remarkable. Um, I also wanted to show you, um, you know, these are the, this is the church when they're full. Look at the size of these churches. Who would believe this looks like you're somewhere in Nigeria, but in fact, this is in Western Europe, and this is happening across the continent. I also want to pay tribute to um, uh, HTB Network. This is the Holy Trinity Brompton Network, and this is within the Anglican movement. And like the Methodist Church, there are these amazing renewal movements that take place inside these denominations. Uh, this is the a church that uh, was led is led by Nikki Gumbel, and uh, this is a. I've been there, spoken at this church. Uh, this is the church where they started the Alpha movement, and I believe uh, the Alpha course is something that you will be aware of. I'm pretty sure that your pastor told me that you have uh, used this in uh, your churches, but. The Alpha Course has proven to be uh, the most effective tool for reaching Western people that are kind of in a post-Christian funk, you know, that have lost their Christian memory, et cetera. And uh, this is very remarkable. The church I was part of up in uh, Massachusetts, uh, we ran uh, 14 cycles of Alpha, and we were able to use that to um, to reach people. It's basically a... Um, a conversation, uh, meal-based approach. You can do it with videos or do it uh, through your own uh, teaching, but essentially you follow a workbook or videos and you can lead people in a very open conversation. Um, and this has brought a lot of people to Christ uh, from millennials, especially Gen X's that would normally not be, um, you know, coming to church. And so that's spread uh, around the world. Well, in uh, closing, and I hope that you have some questions, I want to just make a couple of comments in closing because I want to make sure we stop at 8 o'clock and have time for your um, questions. But I, I love the fact that the uh, New Testament uh, gives us this promise where, uh, where, where the Lord tells us uh, about Christ, with your blood you purchase men and women from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, even though there are only 195 countries in the world, we know that there are about 17,000 people groups in the world, and we believe that this is referring to people groups. The word, the Bible, the biblical word for nation, like in the second text, it says the gospel preached in all the world, as a testament to all nations. That word there in Greek is the word ethne, which means ethnic groups. It really talks about a viable church springing up within all 17,000 uh, people groups in the world. And there's still about 6,000 people groups that have not yet heard the gospel. And this is what is happening with these missionaries from the West, from Nigeria, from China, and around the world. But the last slide I want to show you is one of the most interesting. We started with the, uh, the map of the um, kind of that statistical map, you know, showing the um, this, this, the center of Christian gravity. Well, uh, we had another question we asked one time. What, and this is a kind of a bizarre question, but what if you wanted to find a way to communicate to people the, the sheer diversity of the church? Because the church uh, of Jesus Christ is the most diverse movement in the history of the world. There's no movement that is more diverse in terms of language, ethnicity, race, 
uh, people groups than the Church of Jesus Christ. And so we asked the question, um, well, what is the most uh, spoken language of Christianity? What, what is the, you know, if you could say, if you had a Bible, this is our question, could you have a Bible, and you had the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but rather than an English Bible, like, like you have, or if you're an Indian, a Hindi Bible or whatever, you have a Bible that would change languages based on how many people spoke that language in the world. And so what would be, what would the Bible look like if it reflected, in this case, we're looking just at the linguistic diversity of the world, because we, we, we could measure uh, the languages that the church speaks. And this is what we found out. And this is interesting. Hope it's interesting. This is kind of like a little teaser at the end. That if you took this imaginary Bible in the year 2020, and you opened it up, and it actually reflected the languages of the, the church, the number one spoken language of Christianity today is Spanish, which is really interesting. And being from Florida, you'll appreciate this. So the Bible would run from Genesis 1 to Joshua 3 would be in Spanish. And then we get to Joshua 4, it would move to the second most spoken language, which is, which is English. And go from Joshua 4 to 1 Kings 6 would be in English. And then it would switch in 1 Kings 7 to Chinese. Isn't that amazing? And go to 2 Chronicles 14. So think about this. The three most spoken languages of Christianity are from three different continents. Think about it. From Latin America, from Western Europe, and from Asia. And then it would go to, uh, you know, and I, didn't, I don't have the whole chart to show you, but go to Korean, and then it would go to Hindi, and then go to Swahili, Korean, of course, because of Korean Christianity. Hindi, I was so pleased by this, because this, this is the fifth most spoken language of Christianity is in Hindi. And I've, uh, I've actually published some of my books in Hindi, and it's a, it's a great thing to know that this is a really important group. Uh, we, our ministry in India, we, we were able to produce the first um, what's the, what's it called? A, uh, uh, oh, were you, um, concordance the, the, we produced the first Hindi concordance ever produced in India back in the, uh, early two thousands. And it was a great gift to the church in, uh, in India. And Swahili is the language of East Africa and places like Tanzania. My daughter also speaks Swahili. And then, uh, by the time you get to revelation, okay, this is fast forward a little bit. It changes language every single verse until eventually it changes uh, by the end of Revelation every word until eventually you got to 2,500 different languages are spoken today in the Christian movement. Uh, That is a remarkable thing. And uh, our daughter is working among a group called the Alagua, and they were were no-known Christians, amongst the Alago when she arrived 11 years ago, and there are now a few Alago Christians. So maybe one letter will be the Alagua, the Alaguisa is the language. But the point is that this is growing, this is changing, uh, and this is just one snapshot. But it gives you a little feel for the uh, global diversity of the church. And I hope that um, this quick overview, um, and I want to have time for questions because you may have more want to drill down any part of the world, but I hope it gives you a real sense for the beauty of Christianity, when John sees that vision in Revelation 7-9, uh, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and language, that is happening. 
and he sees the world and all of their cultural particularity, all their beauty, their languages. He sees them preaching, uh, speaking and worshiping Christ. And so we are seeing that in our lifetime unfold in ways that were unprecedented in the history of the world because for much of the world, much of uh, the last, at least the, the Protestant history in the 16th century onward, uh, this was simply not uh, what the church looked like. And today uh, is truly a remarkable, remarkable thing. Well, thank you for this uh, time together. We have uh, uh, blitzed through quite a bit, but we wanted to keep it to uh, one hour, and then we would have time for questions. So I'm going to turn it over to our uh, host. I'm not sure. I guess, Trevor, are you the one that's uh, compiling the questions? Yes, I sir. I am. We, uh, we lost Pastor Dale for a moment. His internet dropped, but he joined back on, and I believe he's unmuted now. Dale, you with us? Yes, I am. Can you hear me, Trev? Uh, yeah, uh, let me take Dr. Tennant off spotlight video. All right, Dale, why don't you go ahead and speak again? Well, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, can. we can hear you. Is your yeah, video I was on? only out just a couple of minutes and able to get back in. I just want to say real briefly, uh, Dr. Tennant, great presentation. Uh, we always feel a little guilty that we, we, we t- you've written all these books, you teach all these classes. We give you about an hour and five minutes to work through this material. And uh, you did a great job. I loved everything about it until the very end when you said the the first language is Spanish. Our pastor of our uh, Espanol congregation tells me all the time his language is the language of heaven. And so I think you just gave him more strength in that argument. Hey, I wanted to say one thing for our people who are listening. Many of you will know this, not all of you perhaps. The two churches certainly that you uh, showed in Korea, I've been... Uh, to both of those churches. And Quang Lim Methodist Church is actually on Prayer Mountain at that church where I uh, received the name Community of Hope uh, while I was there in Prayer Mountain, uh, praying all evening, knowing that Beth and I were going to move our family back to Palm Beach County and plant a church. So we've got a lot of affection uh, for for what is happening in Korea um, and feel a strong connection to that. So thank you so much for pointing that out. Uh, there's some great uh, questions that have yes. come in. And Trevor, would you walk us through those? I absolutely will. Um, Dr. Tennant, it was, so I'm not just saying this, you know, because, uh, you know, you obviously know I'm a fan and I have deep respect for you. Um, but my goodness, there's lots of comments when people are talking about that. Someone said, this is so enlightening and encouraging. And others said, this information has been so encouraging and enlightening. Again, different person, entirely same words. Um, so this is riveting. And I think as the moderator, I think this might be some of the best questions we've had thus far in Hope University. So um, I think that speaks to the content. So thank you so very much. Yeah. Okay. So you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Um, there is no way we're going to get through all these great questions, but I'm just going to try to pick um, the best ones to go at it. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to start here with the first question, um, was actually asked by my dad, who's on this call with Arch. And, uh, he asked, um, is Christianity in India, the majority or their main religion? Is that, what is the main religion of Christianity, uh, main religion in India? Yes. Right. Right. The, uh, the dominant religion in India is Hinduism. So Hinduism is the vast majority of, of, uh, of Hindus. In fact, it's probably uh, in the 90s, like 92, 93 percentile uh, of, of Indians follow Hinduism. 
Uh, India also has a large Buddhist population. Uh, Buddhism uh, has come into India. Uh, I mean, it was actually founded there, but it was it left by the 10th century, but it's now come back because of t- Tibet, you know, and all of the problems of Tibet. So you have a big refugee population. There are now millions of Buddhists in India. But then there's also a large Muslim population in India. Uh, there's probably 50 million Muslims in India. So uh, Christianity is actually uh, very, very tiny compared to, compared to Islam or Hinduism, uh, about only about 3%. So Christianity is uh, definitely the minority faith in, uh, in India, especially in the north where we worked. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, there is, we have, I think, the majority of our questions that we're going to get to in a minute, um, I think there are the, have the most meat to them have to do with what you talked about and how you briefly opened the can on insider movements within Islam. Yeah. Um, you are very fascinated about that and want to hear about yeah. that. Um, here's, but first, so let's ask about Africa. One person asked, um, they were surprised it took so long for the, the gravity map uh, of, you know, showing where's the center of Christianity for it to move into Africa. Because they talk about the, they remember the story of Philip led a man from Africa to the Lord. Man, and I, they said, I, I would have thought that that would have started a growth, but maybe it wasn't enough to help carry it to the center. Do you know, just from world Christianity and church history, you know, what was maybe the delay in the explosion of growth of Christianity within Africa itself? Yeah, the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, of course, is uh, attributed to have gone down into um, actually what today is still part of Egypt, but it's, uh, you know, t- traditionally Ethiopia, that southern Egypt area. Mm-hmm. And there actually is a very old church in North Africa, which that, those churches were connected to, that's called the Coptic Church. And so the Coptic Church in North Africa, as your uh, question or ask, is a very ancient church. And in fact, if you go back to the, the third century, uh, we had 50 Christian bishops in North Africa. So uh, the, the point he made is true. There actually was an early penetration in North Africa. It was very profound. Uh, many of the great early Christians like Clement and Augustine came from North Africa, right? So these are some great Christian movements. The, uh, the largest Christian library in the world, in the ancient world, was in Alexandria, which is North Africa. So Africa actually did have just what your questioner asked or expected, a pretty remarkable Christian growth in the early period. But there were two things that happened. Uh, Number one, the Saharan desert was an impenetrable barrier. Uh, It's hard for us to imagine, but it wasn't for many, many centuries that they determined uh, how a camel could cross the Saharan Desert. Uh, and the camel had to be connected through certain oases, but it was extremely difficult. I mean, go, go crossing the Sahara was like us going to the moon. This was extremely difficult to do. So the connection between North Africa and, and kind of the sub-Saharan Africa, the story we, we looked at, was not happening. Mm. And so eventually the Muslims actually are the first ones that, that worked out the technology of this. And the Muslims were the first to cross the Sahara Desert, and they brought Islam into Africa. Mm-hmm. And then later, uh, the North African situation, which was so vibrant, when Islam exploded in the 7th century, Islam came into Africa, and Islam completely took over North Africa. And so the whole church collapsed in North Africa. So that early vibrancy was gone. So it took, actually, a later period 
mostly in the 19th century when Western missionaries went back into West Africa and began to preach the gospel. So the, the African church below the Sahara got a very late start compared to what you might think. And the main reason is the Sahara Desert. It's just it's hard to cross. I think in our day and age, we don't think about geography like that anymore because of our means of transportation. That's, that's so obvious, but yet it's, we're blind to it. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. The internet Um, wasn't there yet, Trevor. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, they weren't tweeting about it then? No way for the Bishop of Alexandria to to zoom the people of Nigeria. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, just a, just a point of of an interesting point on that point. We could go on and on all this, but, the, uh, one of the great things about the way the gospel spread in Africa is today the largest Christian movement is in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to Nigeria, I spent time working in Nigeria too. If you go, go to Nigeria and look at the history of Nigeria, uh, Nigeria, the gospel was brought to Nigeria by other Africans. And so it's really interesting how the, uh, the, the early Christian movement in Africa happen because the Africans themselves in West Africa. So it's a really interesting story how the gospel spread across Africa, not just the missionaries, but also among Africans as well. Wow. Wow. Okay. Let's, uh, let's jump into um, Christianity and Islam. Um, I, I, I'm thrilled to get to share your teaching with everybody about this. I spent a whole semester in your class on, on this topic and learning about this, writing research paper on some of this stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm just thrilled to get to share this you know, share your teaching with everybody about this. Lots of questions about, tell us more about how people who are Muslims or Hindus come to know Jesus, especially maybe closed context. My goodness, how does that even happen? Yeah, great question. Uh, there have now been uh, a number of research points on this where we've gone in and talked to the, talked to them. And I want to just brag a little bit on Azri at this point, because we about maybe 20 years ago, we started a thing called Bridging the Divide. And this was an opportunity to go and actually uh, meet with some of these uh, hidden Christians. And uh, our first meeting was in Turkey. And we had to go into Turkey as tourists. And so we had to do some tourism as to fulfill our visas. But then we went to a small town north of, uh, of, um, of I won't say where, but north of uh, Istanbul. And we we had to be have all, lose all of our computers, lose all our cell phones, and we went and we spent 10 days meeting uh, Muslim leaders from around the world. We've now met uh, in three parts of the world, and I'm so happy. I believe it was 2015. I don't know if, Trevor, you were here or not at that time, but I we actually— left. What's the you just left? We actually hosted uh, Bridge and Divide in Asbury. <laughs> it was actually amazing. They really wanted to meet in North America— they had to find a place that was quiet and like, you know, like nobody would care. And so I thought, well, hey, Wilmar, Kentucky. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so we've actually well, had some of these underground Muslim leaders, um, Muslim followers of Jesus in Wilmore, amazingly. But anyway, um, most of them, uh, I mean, it's hard to generalize, but the vast majority of them have came, came to Christ initially through dreams and through visions. Again, which is so outside of our normal way of thinking about how people come to Christ. These are people that if they try to visit a church, uh, and I'm not being critical of the church in the, in the Middle East, but the Middle East has become ethnically defined, like who is and who is not Christian. So someone who's a Muslim background person who comes to a church, they think immediately, oh, they're, you know, maybe they're a spy. Maybe they're, they're trying to spy on us. There, there's all kinds of things that 
that are challenging like this. And so uh, they feel like they can't freely go into a church as inquirers. Like, you know, like your church is very opening and receptive and those cha- those challenges are there in the Middle East. And so what happened is these uh, Muslims began to uh, have visions and dreams and many of them began to come to Christ. And so this movie got started. Uh, we don't know for sure where it started first. We think it first started actually in, um, uh, uh, in Bangladesh, in Bangladesh. And then from there, these Muslims themselves would travel, meet other Muslims, and it kind of grew from there. Uh, we did know, we found out that this movement is very vibrant in India. So, for example, uh, in Madras, a study was done by a guy named um, a Lutheran missionary, I won't mention his name, but anyway, he did a study in Madras and found out there were 186,000 people who followed Jesus in Madras. This is in Chennai. We call it Chennai today. In Chennai, this is a big city in South India, that are not members of any visible church but are following Jesus within their, within their Hinduism. So Hinduism allows you to worship one God as a supreme God, and they, they do that as, as Christ. Um, another thing that's happened is over time, um, these Christians have been categorized, you know, trying to understand where they're coming from, where their, their background. And so they're, today, they're, they're known in the literature as C5 Christians, uh, the letter C5 so if you were to go on the internet and search, um, there's a lot of literature. I've written a lot of articles myself on what's called C5 Christians. And these are people that are called hidden Christians or secret believers, underground believers. And um, they're, some entire mosque have come to Christ. They call these now Jesus mosques. Um, wow. they, uh, and yet they are, like in India, for example, we have, when you, uh, like in America, there's no religious affiliation, but in your census. But in India, when you're born, you have to declare what religion you are. So when a child is born in India, they get an identity card with their name and their language, their birthplace, and their religion. It's very, very difficult to change that. Again, you create all kinds of problems. So when someone comes to Christ, they will say, is there any reason why I do I have to change my identity card? And so they get baptized. They even may come to church, but their official identity is is Hindu. So you have people like that kind of lightly, uh, kind of officially governmental Hindu, all the people that are inside mosque who are secret believers. I mean, the whole spectrum is there, mm. and uh, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. And as I said, it's now millions of people around the world. Wow. Um, that, just to circle back on that, we had a couple questions about that, about uh, talk more about the insider movement. I think you did that by talking about C5 Christians and for people to do further research on that. Um, that particularly was from, you met them, Vic and Kathy Copan, um, who they uh, you know have missionary hearts. They're obviously wonderful partners of our church, incredible teachers, but they spent almost, I think, 20 years, right, Dale? Was it nearly 20 years in Austria, 16, 17 years, I believe 16 or 17 years in Austria as missionaries. And so this is Vicki, Kathy, love you guys. I know this is right in your wheelhouse. Um, so that's great. Uh, okay. Another question about Islam. Uh, one person asked is the influx of Muslim immigrants to Europe, particularly areas with Sharia law having an intimidating effect on Christianity. You know, people reading about this and hearing about uh, so much of uh, immigration happening into Europe. Is there any impact upon Christian movements in Europe from influx of Muslim communities? Um, a great question. Um, probably the best book on this is by Philip Jenkins. It's a book called God's Continent. 
and mm-hmm. he does a study on that very question, uh, what, what has happened with Islamic. Um, and this is the man that wrote, has written a lot of uh, books on global Christianity. He's a very articulate Christian, but he was really asked, what is the, what is this, uh, what's happening in, um, in Europe? The thing that's clear is that immigration into the U.S. is very, very different than immigration into Europe in terms of who's coming in. So in the U.S., uh, despite all the kind of press to the contrary, the uh, 86% of people that are coming to the U.S. as immigrants are uh, come from Christian backgrounds. There's a lot of Christian influx. So a lot of the most vibrant church, in fact, the fastest growing church in North America are, in fact, immigrant churches. So the immigrant population into North America is actually contributing and strengthening the church in very, very big ways. In, uh, in Europe, on the other hand, you have much stronger influx of Islamic peoples into Europe. So there's no question. Um, and he looks at it from two sides. One is the, the numbers of people coming in in immigration. But two, and this is actually the more interesting point in terms of demographics, is the birth rate differences. Yeah. Uh, Europe has had a dramatic decline in birth rates. Yeah. We're seeing this now in North America with millennial generation. So when you have a uh, decline in birth rates where families choose not to have children, uh, it, it, it's hard to, I mean, Philip Jenkins really lays this out, but the numbers are astonishing. Like if you think about, one couple not having one, one or two children. It seems like, well, it's two children. But when you actually look at the demographics over a generation, it's millions of people because you, you, it's multiplying two, four, eight. It's a lot of children that don't are not born if someone doesn't have children. So yeah. what happens is the birth rate um, in Europe among white Europeans from Christian background is very, very low. It's, it's below two now, which is, is, a, is a point of no re- where your, your culture collapses. But I think it's below... You get one below 1.3, your 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 people group will collapse and you can't recover. It's wow. at 1.7. Even Ireland, which has traditionally had the highest birth rate in Europe, is also going down below two. Wow. Whereas the Muslim birth rate is very high. I think it, it ranges, he gives all the statistics, but it ranges usually around four to five, sometimes six percent or six uh, births per per family. So the result of that means a lot of new Muslims in the United Kingdom. Mm. Now, whether that intimidates Christians or not is a, is a subjective question. I have no idea. Uh, I lived in Europe uh, for three years. I, I never really felt like anybody in our church uh, that I worked with was particularly intimidated by the Muslims. They just knew that every, like all your News shops and your grocery stores, their Muslims ran those shops. They ran, they interact with every day. I think the challenge is they don't know how to communicate the gospel to them because yep. what we have also learned is that well over half the Muslims in Europe are non-practicing Muslims. It's not like these are like devoted Muslims. These are huh. people that are secularized Muslims that live in Western Europe, and they're really no different from secularized Western white people. And so there's a lot of uh, missionary challenge there, but it, it, there's, you can't compare immigration in North America and immigration in Western Europe on that point. It's a big difference. Sure. Great. Uh, you ready for a couple questions about China? Sure. Let's go to China. All right. We're all <laughs> over the world. Literally, we're all over the map. Okay. Uh, uh, some per, one person asked here, uh, do you expect the number of Christians in China to overtake the number of Christians in the U.S.? Yeah, great question. I wish I had this. I had one more slide I could have shown you, but it shows you 
well, where the Christians are uh, from 1910 to 2050 in terms of just the, not percentages, but the, just the aggregate number of Christians in every country. And what's so interesting is in the year 19, or actually 1900, um, every single uh, country that had like the, high, the top 15 highest numbers of Christians were all in the Western world. Um, by the time you get to 2020, it's only uh, two or three countries in the Western world uh, meet the number. By 2050, the only one left is the United States. So at this point, we don't believe that China will pass the United States in terms of sheer numbers of Christians uh, until probably around the year 2060. That's a long way away. Well, it's 40 years from now. Um, and the, But the reason, though, is because of the dramatic growth of immigrant churches in North America. Now, again, we haven't, we didn't discuss North America tonight, but North America has a very vibrant growth of Christianity that is not happening maybe among the European descent peoples, but is very vibrant. And so if you look at the churches that are growing in North America, they, they are keeping that percentage, that number very, very high. They also have high birth rates. So the result is, uh, by the way, all this comes from the World Christian Database and the World Encyclopedia, which is uh, led by uh, Dr. Todd Johnson, who uh, now heads the Global Christian Center at Gordon Connell, where I used to teach. And so uh, he's a brilliant um, uh, scholar on these type matters. And so he believes that it's going to be um, probably 2060 or 70 before China passes the U.S. in terms of numbers of Christians. It's a lot of time for us to have an awakening. So yes. it gets my competitive juices going. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, great. Another question about China. Uh, so many great questions. We're not going to get to them all, uh, which is you know, a great sign of a riveting conversation. Um, uh, another, uh, another question about China was, is it true that the Chinese government is cracking down on Christians more now than they have in recent years? Yeah, great question. Uh, uh, the answer on that is a difficult one because it's um, China – uh, doesn't always have a congruence between what the national government does in the, in the local, the provincial level or state level. Mm. So uh, it's true that in general, things are getting worse in China. I think in generally that's true. I think the answer to that is yes, it's getting worse in recent years. But the interesting thing is on the province level, uh, there are pockets where the, uh, the Christian has a lot more freedom and so we get reports from places where things that happen in one province, they just could never happen in another province. So a lot depends on where you are in China. And typically, uh, obviously, there's a lot of persecution among Muslims in the West. The Uyghurs are being put in concentration camps. Uh, Christians in a place like Beijing are really, really persecuted uh, in this capital. But in uh, other parts of China, um, it is not as strong. So it really depends on where you are in China. But generally, generally speaking, this is not an easy time for yeah. Christian faith in China, but the church doesn't seem to be slowing down in its growth right. despite this, which is remarkable. I mean, Tertullian said uh, that one of the church fathers that the uh, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and uh, China seems to be uh, exemplifying that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. Um, I think we have time for one more question, and I'm just going to take personal privilege, and I'm going to have the last question. So um, uh, I've heard from people, I'm not even sure if this claim is true. Um, I've seen some uh, different Christian missionary movements into the Middle East uh, make this claim that 
um, one of the areas of the fastest growing church, capital C, not, you know, a, a particular one movement, but where the, one of the places where they say that the church is actually growing the fastest is actually in Iran. Is that factual? What do you know about Christianity's uh, emergence within Iran, if at all? Yeah, I, I do know a bit about it um, because uh, in back to the Bridge the Divide uh, conference we had, I became very, very good friends with a man who is a, uh, an Iranian Christian who uh, runs an entire underground seminary in Iran. Right. And, uh, wow. So he's, uh, he's very well in touch with it. Iran has always had a very uh, different relationship with Christianity than other parts of the Muslim world. So if you look historically, uh, one of the things that's interesting about Islam is that people often make blanket statements about, you know, Islam has a certain attitude to Christianity. But uh, Iran is predominantly Shiite Muslims, not Sunni Muslims. And Iran was particularly uh, dominated by a certain kind, I mean, we won't go into details, but there are different schools of Shiism, but a certain intellectual branch of, of Islam, which actually... Uh, fostered and really liked serious dialogue with Christians. So the point being that Iran has always had a much more open uh, conversation with Christianity than Muslim, than kind of the typical Muslim stereotype. Mm. And so there's a lot of uh, very deep, thoughtful Iranian Christians. Wow. And that movement uh, continues to go. And I've, from my friend, uh, he's amazed at the number of people that are studying and learning and growing and and, uh, and things are going forward in Iran. But in terms of it being the fastest or the largest or the I don't know I don't yeah. know the answer to that question. But I do think that Iran is always like which one of these countries is not like the others. Iran <laughs> has always been in that category. Uh, Iran yeah. is the outlier in terms of Christian uh, Muslim relations in the Muslim world. Uh, that has been very fascinating and been very encouraging because we believe that the um, the Shia Muslims are uh, are obviously a very important dynamic in both Iran and Iraq, and we think that has a big emphasis. Um, there's a there's a, a I don't know I don't have time for this, but just real quick, there's a theory in Muslim uh, in mission uh, studies which uh, basically argues what's called the gateway city idea. The idea being that if you get a move to Christ in certain cities of the world. It has a huge oversized impact on the nation as a whole. So, for example, uh, you know, what happens in a place like, you know, Tampa, for example. Uh, Tampa has an oversized influence on this part of Florida uh, or other, you know, other examples around the world. And so they, they're known as gateway cities. And so um, Tehran is an example of that. So if Tehran were to have a movement to Christ, it would affect the whole Shia world. Wow. I mean, there's no question about it. So we've identified about 20 cities in the world, which are, if we had a movement of Christ in those cities, it would have a dramatic impact on global Christianity because those cities are influencers and, if, and they, they give permission slips. So if you had a, like if Iranian leaders come to Christ, it means that everyone has a permission slip to come to Christ, right? So those are the kind of things that, um, wow. that we, we, I used to do in my, other, my previous life, actually. We used to study that and we used to send people to work in those particular cities around the world. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, we are over by two minutes and there's still so much more we could cover, but wow, what an awesome packed evening. Pastor Dale, you want to say anything in closing words? No, just really want to thank Dr. Tennant again. This has been fascinating. This is exactly when we were dreaming up Hope Hugh and thought about this topic. 
I, I think that this is exactly what we were hoping for. So fascinating and fantastic. Um, hey, Trev, I prayed our friend in. Would you pray him out and close our evening? Can we all just thank Dr. Tennant before we do that? Thank you. <laughs> Yay, great. Yeah, um, I would be most privileged to. Uh, Father, we come to you through the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for Dr. Tennant, for our brother in Christ. Lord, we thank you for his ministry and for his leadership at Asbury Seminary, um, for an institution so deeply affected our church and our tribe that we belong to, um, and myself personally, and my family, and the church where I came to Christ, who, whose pastor is on this call listening to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Lord, uh, we give you thanks for Dr. Tennant and for raising him up to this important position of leadership. Uh, Lord, would you bless him? Would you richly bless him, his wife, his family, his children? Uh, Would you bless the work of his hands at Asbury Seminary? And Lord, with all the things that he is leading and putting his hands to the plow on, we pray uh, for encouragement for him in his leadership, in his heart, uh, that he would feel feel your wind in his sails. You give him refreshment and fresh vision to lead Asbury as we're trying to lead in this strange time. He's trying to lead a seminary in this strange time. Would you bless him? And Lord, um, I pray that you would just give him grace to hear affirmation of well done, Uh, not just for tonight, but for all that he's leading to. We're so grateful for him. Bless this man and bless Asbury Seminary, Lord, to even greater things for the sake of the gospel and for world Christianity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Great. Thank you very much. It's a privilege. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you guys.